the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's Lifeline with Craig Roberts. He's the host of Northern California's longest-running conservative talk show. He's a man with a message, a conservative with compassion. He's Lifeline's own Craig Roberts. And a pleasant good afternoon. April the 22nd. It is, of course, a Wednesday, if you're not keeping track. And these days, not many of us are with all the stay-at-home business going on. So um, here we are, another edition of Lifeline. And um, got a pretty jam-packed program for you today. Coming up a little bit later on, we're going to be visiting with um, Bay Area trial attorney and former assistant U.S. attorney for Northern California, John O'Connor. He's done some interesting research into Google and how Google, in fact, may be used as a bit of a barometer in terms of the direction and spreading of COVID-19, where it may be headed next, what the symptoms look like. It's a fascinating story, and I know that we have, on this program, largely challenged Google for its power and overreach and sort of the big brotherness of it all. But there are some aspects of Google that, in fact, could be put to work as a very important tool, not only in terms of understanding more about COVID-19, but also understanding more about human behavior. We'll talk about that coming up later on in uh, tonight's show. We're also going to be visiting with uh, Brigitte Gabriel. Um, she has got a new petition out that is calling upon leadership in Washington, D.C. to take a serious look at our trade relationship with communist China and, more importantly, look at how we have essentially volunteered. Everybody, it's easy to kind of pile on and say China did this, China did that. But you know what? At the end of the day, China only did what we allowed China to do. China did not come to America and say, we're taking over 95% of your pharmaceutical industry. No, we, we gave that away. We gave that away. But how do we wrestle all that back? How do we better understand the fundamental principle upon which this nation was founded? And that was independence, liberty. We have unfortunately scuttled so much of that and become dependent upon others. High time we visit that issue from a serious standpoint. We'll do that when Brigitte Gabriel joins us later on in tonight's program. I want to talk a bit about the number of states that are beginning to now relax some of their stay-at-home orders. States like Georgia, South Carolina, Tennessee who've announced easing. In some cases, they're going to be reopening even before, for example, Georgia has seen a slowing of the new cases and of the deaths, contrarian to guidelines given by the administration. And the broader question that we perhaps need to be struggling with, and that is that when it's all said and done, and certainly there'll be plenty of talk, plenty of reviews, when we get this horrible experience collectively behind us. But the big question of the constitutionality of it all, 
beyond the epidemiology and did it make sense from a medical standpoint? Did we do more help than we did help? All of these questions, but there are lingering questions in terms of the constitutionality of it all. And to get some insights, a very familiar voice to KFAX listeners for many, many years. We're joined by author, lawyer, constitutional expert, reporter, Joe Murray. And Joe, (laughs) great to have you on the show. Craig, it has been way too long. How are you doing, my friend? You know, if if we knew that it took a natural disaster of this sort (laughs) to unearth you, I could have conjured something up. We we could have created false reports about a massive earthquake somewhere or a tsunami or something. <laughs> you and I would have crawled and, out of my hole. You know, I was actually thinking, I said, the last time we talked, I think, between then and now, we've gone through, uh, I, we got out of the Iran deal, the Paris uh, Climate Accord. We almost went to war with Iran. We've gone through an impeachment and now a pandemic. So I guess we better keep talking to each other. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. The, the world is better off when we do. <laughs> exactly. That, well, let's that's get my story, and I'm sticking to it. Absolutely. Well, let's let's get down to cases here, Joe. This is an important question, and I know one that fascinates you because you are a constitutional lawyer by trade and experience, and I know that you've spent time researching this topic as we're trying to really understand all of the angles you know there there that that what is allowable is not always expedient and what is expedient is not always permissible based on law and and this is an arena where i, I suppose hindsight being 2020 this is an arena where fortunately historically we've not had much experience because in the less than 300 years of america's experience, we've really only gone through one or two pandemics yeah. of any real significant import, and, and, and both of those in the 20th century. So talk to me. Um, first off, in terms of, of some of the debate, and we've we've discussed this around the periphery on the program here in, in the last couple of weeks, insofar as is this a decision to be made by the president, a decision to be made by local authorities, by governors, a little bit of all? How, how do we parse all of that to really understand who is responsible and who has authority over what and whom? Okay, and that is an excellent question, because I just want to make sure all your listeners understand that the Constitution is never suspended. Whether we're at war or whether we have a pandemic, the government has to operate within the confines of the Constitution. That's a must. Now, what happens, you can ask Abe Lincoln when he uh, pretty much suspended habeas corpus during the uh, Civil War, there's a lot of uh, corrective measures that may be taken, meaning that leaders might go ahead and violate the Constitution and then say, you know what, it is better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. That happens a lot, too. So the question we have to answer is, who really holds the power? And I'm going to say, in our system of government, it is shared. So when President Trump said he had total power, he wasn't completely right, but he wasn't completely wrong. So let's talk about how President Trump could get a state to open up. Uh, If we, I think Florida was doing this, and I think Rhode Island was doing this, let's take, for example, police start to stop people with out-of-state tags coming in. And I'm sure in your neck of the woods, I know Tahoe was having a lot of issues with that, with people doing the Airbnb going over into uh, Tahoe and into Nevada part or into the city. When you actually stop people and prevent them from coming into your state, American citizens, that's a violation of interstate commerce. And Congress has the ultimate authority to basically control interstate commerce. California cannot interfere with interstate commerce, Florida, Rhode Island. 
that would be an actionable measure if the government wanted the federal government wanted to step in. The other thing we have, Craig, and this is in my neck of the woods in the deep south, this has been a big issue, is church. Okay, they have shut down churches. We still have a First Amendment that says we have the freedom of religion, the freedom to assemble. And what would happen is if we find that these measures are not narrowly tailored, and what do I mean by that? I mean that they are really, it has to be almost like a surgeon. You have to be so precise to go in, get what you need, and get out. If it goes broader, or if it is not applied equally to everyone, then you have a case that maybe your First Amendment rights are being violated, and the Department of Justice can come in and file suit. Or, I should say, a person can file suit under uh, civil rights law, and the DOJ can join in that case. And that's actually, it might be happening in Mississippi, where a town called Greenville was not even letting a church provide service when everybody was in their cars six feet apart. So there are a lot of issues that we got to unravel here. And the, the long story of this whole, or the short story of this whole thing, Craig, is that it is shared power because we live in a, a government that embraces federalism. So it's shared. We're going to have to wait and see who has the bigger hand. And certainly, as you cite, there have been examples of extreme overreach. I mean, <laughs> to come in and say, even when you're in your automobiles, clearly isolated from each other, you can't gather in the same parking lot. I mean, that, that that's clearly ridiculous. And yet, we also have examples, as we've seen down in Baton Rouge with Tony Spell, where they've continued to gather together in the thousands in a church congregation in a building where it's absolutely impossible to experience or practice social distancing and the potential risk to people with compromised immune systems, elderly, young people, everybody, quite frankly. I mean, we've seen so far that for most of the best medical evidence, this is a disease that is no respecter of persons. And so to see levels where, on one hand, the overreach of the authority to ridiculous extremes, and then at the same token, some of the behavior in public. I mean, we've watched these protests here in California, um, mm-hmm. even as recent as last Friday, where they were gathering in the hundreds at the state capitol, protesting the shutdown, wanting that the governor reopen California. And I get the fact that a, there's a lot of suffering going on that's not directly related to capturing COVID-19, but it's suffering in in the the financial sense and the absolute upheaval to so many lives is is horrific and yet at the same token all these people gathering together to protest side by side not wearing masks i suppose at a level i will to the last man defend their right to put themselves at risk for covid-19 what's problematic is all the other people that unwittingly may be exposed to covid-19 because of these actions this is very problematic yeah, you know, when I first started practicing law, uh, my office manager, she always told me, do you want to be uh, smart or do you want to be right? Because sometimes they're not one and the same. Uh, and, and I think this is an area where we have to very much tread cautiously because we want to make sure that we don't have overreach, such as the governor of Michigan and Vermont, I think was the other state, where they said, okay, if you go into a Walmart, you can only buy this these supplies. You can't buy the non-essential stuff in Walmart because it's not fair for the small mom and pops. When you start to have a government telling us what we can buy, what we use our money for, uh, that to me is very much an overreach. And it, it's not narrowly tailored, like I said a minute ago, where you, you have a, a, you know, a very, very sharp precision to get in there, get out, and call it a day. But then that begins, 
begs another question. You know, I'm up here in Tennessee now, and I had to go out to get some food supplies today. And I go into my Walmart, and it looks like it's business as usual, except everybody's wearing face masks. And they're still staying close to each other under the misconception that I guess if I have a face mask, I'm safe. And many of the churches are now arguing, well, why can Walmart pack people full, you know, pack a store full of people that really aren't social distancing, but yet we can't go to church, which we have a constitutional right to do. So this is where it starts to unravel. Craig, because I think when you have these pandemics, and it's just in our DNA, Americans are naturally rebellious. It goes all the way down to that Boston Tea Party. We are not ones that take authority very well. Um, and, and I knew as we got closer and closer to the warmer months, especially in the southern states, and as summer gradually grows, you're not going to be able to keep people in their homes in June, in July. And what we're seeing now is that people are, I don't want to say getting used to because I don't think anyone's used to this, they're getting a little bit more comfortable with it. And they're not necessarily seeing the mass pandemonium that they thought from the beginning that would unfold, but they're also not realizing that the danger is still out there. And just because things look normal doesn't mean they are. Watch any cheap horror flick and you know everything seems normal right before you get axed. And, and I think that's where we have to very much tread cautiously. And, and that's why I think governors that go give up too fast or give up too much too fast they're creating a danger, and governors that kind of hold the, the noose and, and won't let people breathe, they're going to be the ones that are going to create the danger. This is, a, this is probably the most delicate balance that this country has had to ever really go through, uh, this, you know, at least in my lifetime and maybe in your lifetime, and how these governors and the president make the decision is going to have just sweeping ramifications for generations to come. And they have to get it just I think, right. There's only a small yeah, window I, that they can do this. Absolutely. You know, there's a limited opportunity and and one false move can have such phenomenal repercussions, either to the positive or to the negative. And it's a very delicate balance. And, you know, that's why at the end of the day, and we'll pick up more of this conversation around the corner in a moment. But at the end of the day, I think it, it, it behooves us to be more reliant upon at least the medical experts. There have been far too many people out there who render opinions that are not really based in any sort of reality. And, and you've got to believe that every governor is weighing the potential consequences between absolute harry-carry committed to the economy versus the potentiality of what it would mean to have hundreds of thousands of American lives lost. And it's it's horrific enough that right now we're the number one diagnosed country on the planet, nearing 800,000 Americans, and we're watching tens of thousands, approaching 50,000 people that were here with us, and happily so, two months ago that are no longer here. And so trying to understand the information and what to do the, with the information and how to respond to it and doing so in a responsible fashion as the governors are responsible to to the citizenry and their constituents i think we're also responsible to each other and i want to talk a bit about that when we come back also explore some of the questions related to liberty in the United States Constitution, and why there seems to be so many gray areas. With us today is author, constitutional lawyer, and reporter Joe Murray. A look at the question, are all these stay-at-home orders constitutional? As this edition of Lifeline continues. 
pause right now and get you an update on traffic. 520 here in the Bay Area. Let's see what the commute likes looks like here on this Wednesday. And now back to Lifeline with Craig Roberts. All right, we're back to the conversation with us author, constitutional lawyer, and reporter Joe Murray. We're talking about the stay-at-home orders as some states are beginning to maybe even perhaps prematurely ease restrictions and quote-unquote open the economy back up. It begs the larger, broader question, particularly since, as Joe Murray pointed out before the break, we really are in uncharted waters here. We don't know if this is one and done. If it comes back in the fall, do we have to engage in the shutdown of the country yet once again? And um, this is kind of, um, as I say, territory where we don't have an awful lot of experience. One thing that we certainly do know, and that is that there are questions insofar as how far the government can go. The 14th Amendment says that no state will make or enforce any law that abridges the privileges or immunities of citizens of the United States, nor deprive any person of life, liberty, or property without due process of law. I, I guess with the Founding Fathers not being able to precisely foresee global pandemics of this sort, it's a question as to whether or not, under the current set of circumstances, Americans have been deprived of liberty. Yeah, I mean, and it's a great question. And, and let me rest assured that the, the courts are working. Um, interesting enough, uh, there were judges, I think it was Alabama and uh, was it Florida? I forget. I know for sure Alabama, Georgia, uh, where the states, and Texas, I think it was, where the states tried to hold abortion clinics as not being essential services, and federal judges basically shut that down and said you can't shut down the abortion clinics this way. So I, whether or not you agree or disagree with that, I just use that as an example to show that the courts are still operating to protect liberties here. And when you're, what you're seeing with some of these challenges to these stay-at-home orders, it's really what should be, do, be being done. Uh, you have to have a uh, – you can do it one of two ways. It's called as applied, which means that if you and I go out to protest, Craig, and we get in trouble, uh, that's going to be how they, they apply that law to us or that stay-at-home order to us. Uh, or we can just go out there and say, look, this is on its face unconstitutional. If you say that I can't have church under any circumstances, but yet I can go to Walmart – uh, that is going to be just blatantly unconstitutional, so therefore we can challenge that without actually having suffered the injury. And my concern, Craig, is not so much to stay at home orders anymore, because I think whether the governors like it or not, the people are outgrowing them. Uh, and this is going to happen as the weather gets better and as we go into the summer months where we're going to probably see a, a, a slide or a downturn in these in these cases. Um, now, whether or not it comes back in September, I was just watching the COVID briefing. Uh, I think there's a lot of debate as to whether or not it will. But let's just assume for a second we're not even in the fall. You're seeing people coming down uh, with the cases. You see people getting restless. I was just watching where a town in Connecticut is actually considering using drone technology that has thermal imaging that can try to gauge people's temperatures as they're on the streets. So my next area of concern, again, it's not the stay-at-home orders because they are going to have to wear out one way or another, but it's what authority we are now or what uh, trends and, and what patterns we're now setting into place that will exist after these stay-at-home orders. Because 
you're not going to just use thermal imaging necessarily for just fevers anymore. You're now creating a scenario where the state can take a huge power grab into our civil liberties. And truthfully, uh, I don't know what privacy we have anymore between social media before COVID and all the stuff. We're giving up so much of our privacy, Greg, and it looks as if we might be giving up an even bigger chunk of our privacy, uh, privacy even after COVID is defeated and gone. Because how do we roll these back? And that's my main concern. Well, and, and I don't know, at least short term, that we really can. I mean, from what all of the the medical experts are suggesting, that this is not one and done, that this may come back and may come back with a vengeance in yeah. the fall, in which case you have to wonder, okay, uh, we get through this set of restrictions, do they come back and make them more permanent? Or um, is is there some sort of a mandate that comes in at the national level? Let's let's talk about that for the moment. Yeah. We had the president two weeks ago saying that he had the ultimate and final authority to open up the country. And I think he certainly saw plenty of pushback, not only from the state's governors, but also from constitutional experts that reminded him that, no, you really don't have that kind of authority. Um, but what if there becomes a compelling interest at the federal level? This sort of patchwork quilt series of regulations may or may not be working. Again, it's it's too soon to tell. But if, for example, as Georgia begins easing its restrictions, we see a big flare-up or people begin traveling from Georgia to neighboring states and suddenly we see it start to spread all over again and get a second life, so to speak, could that not ignite a debate as to whether or not, because we typically have free flow from state to state, if I want to move to Alaska, I can do so, don't have to get anybody's permission, Uh, you can move around freely in the country, could it be demonstrated and could it be um, defended constitutionally to put in place some sort of a national order? And I think it could, and and this is where I think... You know, and this is one of the reasons I had stepped back from politics. Is everything is just so supercharged, and, and, and things are said, and they get 20 different interpretations. What I interpreted the president when he said that, because I actually was watching that, that conference, was that he had total authority to open the economy. I didn't necessarily know if he was doing the king, but then again, I, don't, I can't get in his head. I don't know what he was doing. But the reason I think he had a footing, and it's a shaky one, because as Americans, we have a Tenth Amendment. We have a Ninth Amendment to protect from federal overreach. But as our economy has grown, the economies of the states are so intertwined that you, it's not just the economy of the state of Tennessee. It's not just the economy, especially for you guys out in California. You have a huge economy that has a huge reach, just not in the country, but outside globally. Um, you know, what happens in one state does impact interstate commerce. If you shut down one economy, if you shut down the economy of the state of California, it is going to impact the economy of the state of Tennessee, the state of Washington, the state of Utah. It has that impact. So if we want to go to that patchwork, that's the Articles of Confederation, where the states had the complete authority to do whatever they wanted, and the federal government did not have really much say in, in correcting it. Now, I think we don't want to be too much on the other side, which is that the president can do whatever he wants, whenever he wants, however he wants. I don't think anybody wants that, whether you're Republican or Democrat. But I do think we have to understand that in today's economic world, that interstate commerce is much bigger than it was even 20 years ago. So the president can't just let a few states refuse to open 
and have that tank the national economy. I think he has a, a role in that, whether it would have been President Clinton or President Trump. I think you have to step in and roll, and I think, I think the Constitution gives him that authority, especially with the Commerce Clause. But also I want to talk about, too, with the people and the livelihood of the states, um, I think you have a good argument for a takings. If you are holding people's businesses shut down, and we are now going into extended periods of time when even other states are opening, that is basically the government taking your livelihood. And this is what I was basically talking to you about before the, uh, the half hour, which is this is such a delicate operation, because if you keep people boxed up too long, they're going to naturally rebel. And if you let them go too early, it's going to blow this pandemic back up. So what I really would wish to be seeing is that these governors working together especially regionally. And I think you're getting that out in California with the Oregon and, and Washington State. I think you're seeing it in the Northeast. Where I'm a little bit nervous is here in the South where I am, where you have the governors of Tennessee, Louisiana, Mississippi, Alabama, Florida. They're just kind of going their own. And it's either going to be a great success or it's going to be a colossal failure. And the jury is out way too soon on that. And if you look at places like Florida, like Atlanta, which is a huge city, it, whether Atlanta lives or, you know, survives or I should say wins or fails, uh, it's going to impact the rest of the country because it could spread from Atlanta. Good Lord, uh, Atlanta International Airport is one of the biggest airports in the world. See, and this is the problem because as much as we've argued that different states, different scenarios, clearly in a state that's spread out like Wyoming where, you know, uh, social distancing is normal because there's, you know, miles between houses and people don't gather typically in, in large group settings. So the restrictions that you would put in place for a Wyoming would not make sense for a California or San Francisco or a New York and vice versa. And yet, as you point out, and this is where I guess from a constitutional standpoint, this becomes so challenging because while it it's, makes arguable sense that there be different regulations for different areas based on, on what's proper and appropriate for those areas from a, a health standpoint, this is not an isolated country. You can't put up a wall and say, California, you folks are all sick. We want nothing to do with you because there's interstate commerce that's involved. There, there's, there's exchange financially that happens most naturally from state to straight, state to state that, that you can't suddenly literally shut down a state at all the borders because the ripple effect across the entire country would be devastating. I mean, you may, you may not be a big fan of California, but if you don't have access to our technology all of a sudden, um, you're going to be hurting when you want a computer and can't find one. I, that's, that's just a, a, a broad, very loose example. And, and I guess herein lies the challenge, wanting to be sensitive to the various levels of needs from state to state and region to region, while at the same time understanding there's a much bigger picture that we need to consider. And that is where I thought, and you know, and I've been going back and forth on this too. The constitutional purist in me uh, has issues with the federal government having overreach, but then the the average Joe American that wants to make sure the country doesn't get thrown into another pandemic round two wants to see some some uh, some caution. And I and that's why, first of all, what Gavin Newsom has done out in California. If you compare California and New York, our two biggest states by far in terms of population and so forth. I mean, you guys have really done a good job out there. And, and not to say that Cuomo hasn't, it's just he, he might have had other aspects, especially with travel coming from Europe. But, I mean, just to see how it has been contained in a lot of the places in this country, I think it's a great testament to 
the governors who have really come together and, and try to do what's best for their states to protect them against this virus. But now where I'm seeing is people are getting, uh, the politics is coming into it, and people are getting upset having to stay home and not having to have food on the table or worry where their paychecks. These are real issues, and I'm not minimizing them by any stretch of the imagination. It's a lot easier for the politicians and people who are getting paychecks to say, hey, we need to slow down. For people who don't know how they're going to pay their mortgage, don't know how they're going to have breakfast, I get that struggle is real. Believe me, I get it. And I think what you know, one of the things that was done up out here in Tennessee, which is a little bit different from Georgia, is the governor basically said, I'm rescinding my stay-at-home order, but the rest of the counties and the mayors, they can put one if they need it, which means that our three big cities in Tennessee can still be under lockdown orders because, truthfully, that's where the virus is. It's not in the rural counties in the center, of the, you know, in the middle of the state. But the problem with Georgia that I think is going to be, it's either going to be a huge success or a huge failure, is that he is not allowing the mayors to actually have a say in whether or not their cities open. They are opening. And it's going to be the bar, not the bar, it's going to be the, the spas and the tattoo parlors, which I'm thinking to myself, you know, I understand these people need livelihood, but you're, you're not even following the guidelines from the federal government. None of these states that are opening right now have had that 14-day decline. And I thought the guidelines were a great step. It was a step in the right direction. 14 days of decline, make sure you have hospital bed capacity. This is what you do in phase one. This is what you do in phase two. They have a great medical team up there, Birch and Foxy. They're, they're doing a really good job. I love the Surgeon General. And I'm just a little bit worried that the governors, especially in the southern states, are just paying no homage to that. And, and we're not talking about Wyoming, where there's 300 cases. We're talking about... Georgia, where I think there's 19,000, Tennessee, where there's 7,000, Mississippi, where there's 2,000, that's nothing to sneeze at. I mean, it's nothing to sneeze at. And I, and, and we're going to find out whether or not the president will step in uh, if Georgia spirals out of control rather quickly. And I think that has the potential of happening in the next three weeks. Wow. And, of course, you know, there's, there's no previous experience upon which to base any of this, even the experts at multiple levels seem to be a little bit confused and the story, so to speak, uh, continues to morph. This is all brand new. And and unlike Kellyanne Conway, uh, let's be clear, you can't say, well, this is COVID-19, folks, come on. Haven't you learned anything? Well, <laughs> that's not to suggest there were 18 COVIDs ahead of it. But in fact, it was discovered in 2019. Because there's no um, best practices that we can really go to school on, uh, it, it really becomes uh, this patchwork quilt. And we just, I guess, at the end of the day, really have to hope and certainly pray that everything comes out okay. I, I, before we leave, uh, Joe, I want to get your your opinion on something. Um, there have been a number of procrastinators out there that, um, quite frankly, have, have spotted off and, and, uh, and I think... Um, uh, unwittingly so, created more problems. Uh, Dr. Phil is one, for example, um, who recently um, compared the death toll of the pandemic to deaths from swimming. Um, should be noted that he cited a false statistic saying that 36,000, sorry, 360,000 people a year die from swimming pools, and, and actually the, the figure is 3,600, not 360,000, which is a pretty significant difference um you know and he tried to argue that well we don't shut down the country for that but when i hear those kinds of comparisons to people that die from cigarette smoking people that die in swimming pool accidents 
isn't there one major notable difference? And that is that those are both voluntary actions and you yeah. basically take your own you know, life in your own hands if you choose to engage in them. Whereas I don't know anybody who who has been diagnosed with COVID-19 who did so willingly. Now, and that is the case. And we have to be so careful. And that's what I'm saying. You know, one of the reasons I'm a little dismayed with our current state of affairs, and I saw this coming well before President Trump's election, it, it had been happening for quite some time, is the whole sensationalism of our news media. And to have Dr. Phil go out and say that, yeah, you're going to get a lot of clicks on YouTube, you're going to get a lot of exposure, you're going to get a lot of recognition, but it's just so dangerous to go out and say so many careless things because people pay attention to what is on TV. And people don't always realize that what's on TV is kind of infotainment. Yes, there is some information in it, but there's also an entertainment aspect to it. Uh, and, and that's why, I, yeah, I mean, you look at Dr. Phil, who, he, you know, I, I don't know if he still has his medical life. I forget. I read a story about it. But, yeah, he, he's been through medical school, so he knows what's going on. And he's built his career on the respect uh, of his opinion and his ability to to think intellectually and to get things done. And when you say that, I mean, I'm not saying people need to be sheltered in place and in home and, and keeping their head in the sand for the rest of their lives. But here, knowledge is power. And I think one of the biggest things, other than this actual virus, that is the biggest challenge for this country is to finally put politics aside, finally put ideology aside, and let's just focus on the knowledge. You know, they say facts, not fear. But I just don't see that. And I thought, Craig, when this happened, I thought, well, maybe the silver lining to this pandemic is that this country will finally come together and start working together to get things done. And that lasted all of but two weeks. Uh, and, and that, I think, you know, whether, you know, we're going to defeat COVID-19. It's just a matter of time on that. But I think the bigger question we need to be looking for as a country, are we going to defeat ourselves because we, have the, we do not have the ability to come together anymore like we once did? Whether it was World War II, whether it was World War I, whether it was uh, the Revolutionary War, whatever it has been, we've always had an ability to band together. I just don't see that anymore, Craig. And that, to me, is just as scary sometimes as COVID-19. Yeah. Um, words of wisdom from constitutional lawyer Joe Murray. See, Joe, this is the reason why we miss you. Uh, few offer the kind of uh, clear-cut insights and can provoke us to think as you do. We sure appreciate the time. There is author, constitutional lawyer, and reporter Joe Murray with some insights on the 14th Amendment and the question of the constitutionality of the shutdowns. 548, we step aside to get you an update on traffic from the KFAX Traffic Center.